I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Each summer throughout my high school years, my father and two of my brothers, along with several other boys and their fathers, went on a two-week fishing trip to Red Lake, Ontario. From where we lived in central Wisconsin, it was a long drive, over 700 miles, 440 of which were north of Duluth, Minnesota. That's way up north. And the last 100 miles were on washboard gravel roads. Well, once we arrived in that rugged, rather remote landscape, we fished those icy, crystal clear waters, Canadian waters, waters so clean that when you were thirsty, all you had to do was reach over the side of the boat with your cup, dip it in the lake, and take a drink. This was a long time ago, of course. Red Lake was famous for its walleye pike, northern pike, and muskie, fish you wouldn't hear about down here. One day, while in a remote cove on that large lake, my younger brother Jim hollered out, I've got a big one on the line, and he sure did. When he hauled it in, it was a 46-inch long muskie the biggest fish that we'd caught the entire time that we were up there. When he pulled it out of the water, my father scooped it up in a large net and then held it over his head and announced, somewhat jokingly, this one's a keeper. (laughs) Now, I just want you to hold on to that thought for a few minutes. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus was always making comparisons. Sinners are like lost sheep. The Word of God is like seed that is thrown on different kinds of soil. The kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. God is like the owner of a large vineyard. Over and over again, he said that the kingdom of heaven is like this or like that, telling his followers stories about brides and grooms, about sheep and shepherds, or as we heard on last Sunday, about weeds and wheat. In fact, In last Sunday's Gospel, Matthew wrote that all of this, all of this Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Well, have you ever wondered why Jesus taught in this way? Why didn't he just come right out and say what he meant? If anyone in the world was qualified to speak directly about the nature and the character of God, certainly it would have been Jesus. But instead, he spoke to them indirectly, making comparisons between the ordinary things of life and spiritual things. Jesus always used images that were familiar to his hearers. He wasn't an elitist. He wasn't even professorial in his teaching style. No, in fact, he was just the opposite. There wasn't a peasant of his day who would have any trouble understanding exactly what he was saying to them, which is why his storytelling was so very popular, so compelling, and drew such enormous crowds. Well, telling parables 
real life stories that had an underlying spiritual meaning seems to have been Jesus' preferred way of teaching. These verbal handkerchiefs that he dropped were his way of exciting the imagination of his listeners to begin to think more deeply about the meaning and importance of the gospel and the connection that that gospel had with their lives. For the people of Jesus' day, parables were like word bridges, word bridges over which they could pass from the very practical realm of life to the spiritual realm so that they could understand better how God perceived them and how they could come to know Him better. Jesus used parables as a means whereby people would be put in touch with what God was like and with their need to be in relationship with Him. Well, in today's Gospel, Jesus gives us a whole string of many parables. They come in the form of a few quick comparisons. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's like yeast that's used in baking bread. It's like hidden treasure that's buried in a field. It's like a rare, exquisite pearl. It's like a net that is cast into the sea and gathers all kinds of fish. These images come to, at us, come to us at rapid fire, one right after another, with no explanation, no time for questions and answers in between. Usually, it was not like Jesus to be in that kind of a hurry. Normally, he would gather his listeners around him and then slide into the story with one of those time-honored introductions like, there once was a landowner, or there once was a king, or there once was a man who had two sons. And when he did this, his followers would, would settle down to listen, knowing that they'd better listen very carefully because beneath this very practical story was a hidden meaning, a spiritual meaning beneath the story itself. But here, in Matthew chapter 13, it's almost as if Jesus doesn't want us to get stuck on any one of those stories for any length of time, but to simply dazzle us by the sheer number and the variety of the images and of the objects that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. It's like this, and it's like this. Or how about this? The first two comparisons he makes seem fairly straightforward, don't they? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed or like a handful of yeast. Not too much to look at there, you say. Well, at least not at first. But give them something to work on. Plant the seed in the ground. Mix the yeast with a little bit of flour. And all of a sudden, the results can be absolutely astounding. A large shrub, big enough for the birds of the air to nest in, and enough bread to feed a family of eight for an entire week. A large shrub from a very tiny little seed, and several loaves of bread from just a tiny smidgen of yeast. Quite the transformation, wouldn't you say? Well, if the kingdom of heaven is like that, 
then it's even more surprising and more potent than meets the eye. The image here is that of the growth and the expansion of Christ's church through the work of the Holy Spirit working in us individually and as a family of believers to produce even more incredible results of spreading the gospel than we could ever possibly imagine. The only restrictions, however, the only restrictions on the growth of the kingdom would be our willingness to expose our mustard seed-sized faith to the soil and the sunlight of the gospel. And by allowing the Spirit's power to mix the yeast of God's love into the flower of our hearts and our minds and to transform our lives. In the next two parables, the parables of the kingdom, referring, of course, to the gospel, that is the good news of God's love given to us in and through Jesus Christ. We discover the kingdom's extraordinary value. However, in these two parables, we find that it's hidden. It's just waiting to be discovered. And once it is discovered, it becomes a no-brainer. One will give up everything they have in order to obtain it. In the first one, Jesus tells us that it's like a man who finds treasure buried in a field and then covers it back up again. Then he sells all that he owns and he buys that field that has the treasure in it. In Jesus' day, discovering buried treasure wasn't all that unusual. Many a farmer had been out plowing in the field when suddenly his plow struck something hard only to discover that it was a chest full of coins or a chest full of jewels. For centuries, the nation that we now know today as Israel had been the battleground across which two great cultures of the ancient world had fought and fought battles regularly, the Egyptians and the Babylonians. And people learned that the only safe place to protect their most valuable of possessions was to bury them in the ground. Which is why Israel was riddled with stashes of buried treasure in the earth, only to be discovered accidentally. So Jesus tells the story about this man who becomes rich. Rich because he stumbled upon a treasure that was hidden in a field. Well, isn't it that way in our life as well? Some people actually stumble upon the gospel. They weren't really looking for it or anticipating it, but they found it somewhat by accident, perhaps through a chance conversation with a total stranger over a cup of coffee, or on an airplane, or by reading a book, or watching a movie, or listening to a podcast, or visiting church with a friend, or attending a baptism, a wedding, or a funeral. What had once been hidden from them had now become a real treasure in their life. Then Jesus goes on to say that the kingdom is also like a merchant who was in search of fine pearls, and when after an exhaustive search, he found that 
one special pearl of priceless worth, what did he do? He sold everything that he had, and he bought it. Well, there are many people today who are searching. They're searching hard for spiritual wisdom and truth and meaning in their life. They examine every religion under the sun, every philosophy, every ideology, Christianity included. They turn the claims of Jesus and his message over and over and over again in their minds until one day they simply conclude that nothing else can match the incredible richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That nothing else has brought them more joy, more meaning, more purpose, more fulfillment in life. And finally, finally they determine that it's worth all that they are and all that they have, and they commit their life to following Jesus Christ. With both of these parables, whether they unexpectedly find treasure hidden in the field or relentlessly search for that one indescribable pearl, each of these men found something of great value. And then what happened? They ended up selling all that they had to make it their own. So you see, the dynamics of the kingdom work both ways. It's about God searching for us and finding us. And it's about our search for God and Him finding Him. Led by the Holy Spirit, people discover the treasure that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've often heard people say, I want to get right with God, and I'll do whatever it takes to do so. Well, the glory and the treasure of the gospel is that we don't have to do a thing to receive it except simply believe it, embrace the truth that it is, the pure grace, the gift that it is, and then appropriate that gift for ourselves. So, if you're counting, that's four. Here's the fifth. One more way in which Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven. The fifth and final comparison in today's gospel is that the kingdom of heaven is like a big fishing net. When thrown into the sea, the net gathers all kinds of fish, those that are, remember I told you to wait just a few minutes, those that are the keepers and the bad fish along with them. When the fishermen pull this net ashore, all the fish are sorted out. They're all sorted out, the good and the bad alike. If the kingdom of heaven is like that, then in the end, it's not something that we find, but something that finds us and hauls us in. Now, it's true that Jesus had very little success with interesting the so-called good fish of his society with the message of the kingdom. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Though Nicodemus did follow him and people like Joseph of Arimathea. But as a matter of fact, he was always being criticized for the company that he kept with people like tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. 
Like the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son, the parable of the net is Jesus' way of describing the kingdom of heaven as a place that is meant for everyone, everyone who is willing to be transformed into his likeness and not be led astray by the culture and the ways of this world, the ways of our current age, which would love to lead us astray. It tells us that God is interested in gathering all sorts and conditions of men, women, and children, and even, as we say at the beginning of the season of Lent, even notorious sinners, the worst of the worst, but sinners who are willing to repent nonetheless, and superlative saints, the good fish. In other words, everything in between. You remember Jesus telling his disciples that he wanted them to become fishers of men, and I would, I would add, and women and children as well. The bottom line of the gospel of God's abundant and life-giving grace is that it is for everyone. Everyone is welcome to receive the gift. John Claypool one of the great preachers of the late 20th century and the early 21st century wrote in his book, Stories Jesus Still Tells, writing about these parables, that in each of these stories, the task is to discern what is worth what. He asks this question, how can we find the true summum bonum? Good Latin, good Latin for how he defines the value above all other values, the highest value of all. That value is God himself and his kingly rule over all reality. When the summum bonum comes along, Claypool says, and it's recognized, it changes the way we evaluate everything, and it leads to a radical reordering of our lives. St. Augustine realized this value above all values when he wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. The value above all values is the gospel the good news of God's love for us and the value that God has placed upon each and every one of us as though there were only one of us to love. Jesus proved that, didn't he? He proved that by dying on a cross to redeem us from our sins and to restore us into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father, a relationship that had been totally ruined, decimated, broken, severed, not only because of the sins of our first parents, Adam and Eve, but because of our own sins as well. His death on the cross was the payment that God required for us to be redeemed, bought back from the destructive nature of our sin, and granted a new, clean, and right relationship with God, one that had been completely restored. When we're willing to trust in Christ alone, to repent of our sins, 
and to turn away from our sin and accept Christ into our life and allow him to transform us from the inside out into the man, woman, or child that he wanted and created and intended us for, to be, then that treasure, the treasure of the good news of Christ crucified and risen from the dead, is ours. If the kingdom of heaven is like these five parables in today's gospel, then it's something that we definitely want to claim and treasure above everything else in our lives. Remember, it was Jesus who said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I believe the question that all of us need to ask ourselves today is this one. Are we making our relationship with God the seed that grows into a tree large enough for the birds of the air to build their nest in? The yeast that makes the bread rise? Have we discovered the hidden treasure that's just underneath the surface of things? Have we searched for and found that one priceless pearl and given everything that is so precious to us in our life to procure it for ourselves? And have we been caught have we been caught in the net of God's saving grace, knowing that he has chosen to redeem us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, poured out on Calvary's cross for you and for me? So I ask you, are you one of those good fish? Are you a keeper spilling out of the net of God's love one that he's taken from the net of this world's ever so attractive lures, temptations, and enticements, the one that he grasps in his hand and holds up high only to declare in his great, booming, thunderous voice for all the world to hear, just as my father did when my little brother caught that 46-inch muskie in Red Lake, Ontario, this one's a keeper. Are you hearing the voice of God say to you today, this one's a keeper? And now unto God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be ascribed as is most justly due, all might, majesty, dominion, and power, now and forevermore. Amen.